Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 200 for June 11th, 2009. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure online, privacy, all that stuff. Here is our security expert, Steve Gibson of GRC.com, a creator of Spinrite, discoverer of spyware, and the host of episode 200. <laughs> Steve. Yes, our double golden anniversary Holy episode. Holy moly. Who would have thunk it? 200, yep. That's pretty great. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. Well, and from all the feedback that I get, this is a Q&A episode, so I ran through the mailbag, uh, and we've got, of course, our regular 12 questions and a ton of security news this week. But, you know, it looks like from the feedback we get, we're going strong, and everyone just says, please never stop. Please, 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 <laughs> never, never stop. So, Well, unless you know. Steve stops, uh, I, don't, I don't have any plans to stop. I'm doesn't, really enjoying it. Based on the security news this week, it doesn't look like we're going to ever run out of content. <laughs> I love that. Well, uh, so uh, we have uh, one commercial uh, from a, our new sponsor, GoToAssist. That's coming up a little bit later, so we'll get to that. After, how about after the security news? Let's, Sounds great. Let's find out what's going on. Uh, in security. I, I understand Microsoft did its biggest patch Tuesday in history, I think. 31 vulnerabilities. Holy cow. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, there, there's, even there's a vulnerability in search, if you can believe it. And in works that no one has even has used for, for quite a while. It's just, How do you and, even and, find and a vulnerability the, in a program nobody uses? And the print spooler has three vulnerabilities. What? It's like, you know, oh, goodness. Yeah, it's it's quite something. So the big news, though, I just sort of had to kind of smile because I told all of our listeners this was going to happen. I said, just wait. This is a bad idea. You're, we're going to see how bad it is. Um, Trojans have Trojan software has been found in ATMs in oh. located in Eastern Europe oh. from many different vendors. Oh, but dear. what one thing do all of the Trojan infected ATMs have in common, Leo? Let me guess. Mm-hmm. Windows? Windows XP. Ay, ay, ay. Um, the uh, LSASS service is the is the manager of protected uh, content in the in the system. Um, it's not quite the right acronym. I can't think of what it is right now, but it, it's like the 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 main security service and fake ones have been found in the Windows directory. The LSASS XE normally lives in the Windows system 32 directory. Um they were written in Borland's Delphi. You're kidding. Uh, no. 
<laughs> well, that's kind of sophisticated for a hacker. Wow. And it's considered, I mean, it's commercial grade code. It's, it's good code. Oh, um, these are not remote installation Trojans. It's believed that somebody had to have access oh, to the machine. Even worse. But you, they, they have special credit cards. When they swipe the special credit card in the infected machine, it accesses the Trojan software, which, among other things, allows them to dump out all the cash from the machine. But in the meantime, it's logging all of the user's information and pins, um, which it's able to dump out encrypted with DES encryption from the printer, from the ATM printer in the front of the machine. Wow. So, so the... Um, you know, and, and and anyway, so it's it's interesting to me. Again, it's you know, people defended the idea of implementing these things that I contend should never have been written in Windows. They say, well, but it's easier to write them, and and it's like, yes, for and everybody, it's also <laughs> easier to write Trojans for everybody involved. We're all happy. A, <laughs> yes, a really nice GUI interface, oh. and you know, lots of third-party support with something like Borland's Delphi, uh, in order to write your Trojans. And but if it were instead written in one of these much more obscure industrial and industrial strength multitasking real-time operating systems it'd be far more difficult they wouldn't be able to write the software you know on the machines that they you know received for christmas uh. so anyway i got a kick out of that i mean it's bad news um the good news is as far as we know it's really it's relatively constrained to eastern europe and many machines over there um, but this is not the kind of thing you want on you know your own local bank's atm you know, logging all of your ATM transactions okay. and then being willing to dump them on command. Yeah. So, yikes. Um, uh, also, the Pirate Bay appeal was denied. Remember that the, the, the four Pirate Bay guys were found guilty. Then there was an appeal that was brought based on the, the membership of a couple of the judges in a pro-copyright organization that, so it went to appeal, and the judgment quickly came back that, yes, we know that these guys are pro-copyright members, but that's just to keep them informed of the copyright law and what's going on. It, it, there's no indication that it in any way biased their judgment. So hmm. the sentence stands. At the same time, there was recently an election. Yes, as you this may is know. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and the Pirate Party won one of 18 seats in Sweden's parliament. The Pirate Party was established three years ago in response to Swedish, Swedish legislation that made file sharing a crime. So the party's publicly declared aims are to reform European copyright law, abolish the European patent system, got to get rid of that pesky intellectual property altogether, and eliminate digital rights management, you know, DRM, uh, and also to allow, as a consequence of all that, free file sharing on the Internet. <laughs> and what's interesting is that this wacky pirate party got a substantial percentage. I think it was 9 point something, 9.1% yeah, yeah. of the vote for these guys and they won a seat. So um, I don't know what that means in terms of their goals. Well, it means but people are pissed off about DRM. I, you know, I've, 
I think people haven't thought through the whole issue of, well, if you don't have intellectual property protection of any kind, if you have no oh. patent or copyright system, nobody's going to invent or copyright anything in Sweden. Right. But uh, but I think it ha- what what this is is the pendulum swinging the other way. People have been are fed up by the out, you know ridiculous copyright well, patent and DRM issues by having this stuff really getting in their way. Yeah. Yes. I mean, again, it, it's you know we know that. It's one thing to pirate, which, you know, we're, we're all against. It's another to be able to have your, you know, your own personal fair use blocked right. by things that get in your way. I mean, this is what happens when companies that. assume and treat you as a pirate. Right. Then you, you're going to have some reaction. And that's I think that's what this is. It's really stunning that they got almost 10 percent of the vote. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, I did pick up on the for, the mail that you forwarded me yesterday, or I guess it was uh, last evening, mm-hmm. um, about the the Comcast social security number in Can security. Can you believe that one? Oh, um, a guy on the Unix Junkie blog, uh, a guy named Greg Miller blogged, uh, and Greg is a Google software engineer. Um, this is not super recent. This was last October 26th in an 08, he blogged. Um, he was setting up his. He was going to be moving and setting up Comcast, a new sub Comcast subscription in the 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 new location where he was moving to, and everything seemed to be going fine until the last step required that he he do do an online text chat with a you know a nameless faceless Comcast person. So. This Java applet downloads, and he noted that it downloaded over HTTPS, but he was skeptical of whether the actual interactive chat text was also encrypted, hoping that it was, especially because one of the things they required was that he enter his social security number into the chat and it already had his name and address and, you know, other clearly personally identifying information. The chat E at the other end said, oh, don't worry, you can trust Comcast, it's secure. <laughs> well, being a Google software engineer and a techie, he fired up a packet capture and and watched as unencrypted in the clear um, transactions went back and forth you didn't even have to guess what the content was because every field was clearly labeled, you know, <laughs> social security number equals. And then, you know, first name, last name, you know, date, address, city, state, zip, all the fields, you know, clearly identifying what their content was just being sent right out of his machine with no security at all. So he he put the blog posting up to warn any other people that, you know, they absolutely didn't want to do that. Oh, and he gave the person a hard time because uh, I remember looking at actually the chat text that was in the clear and the person responded, well, if you don't trust us, you know, to, to do this, then you can call, you know, somebody and do it live over the phone. He said, thank you. That's what I think I'm going to do. Wow. It's like, unbelievable. Um, when I turned on my Mac this morning, uh, there was a whole bunch of updates, but for a change, not security related. These were just feature updates. You know, I everything, iLife, iDVD, iMovie, iPhoto, uh, and Airport all got updates. And of course, there was a big Safari Four update. Yeah, and a nice one too. Yeah, they, it looks they, really. Nice. They put the tabs back. I mean, where they belong. 
instead of the top of the window. And it's got this whole panoramic sort of, what is it? Is it nine or 16 pages? Yeah. It might be 16 pages that it learns where you go the most and sort of shows you a, a you know, sort of that, Sort of like that that folder view that that they've got for the iPod view of like your popular sites and what the current faces of those are. Right. It's not real fast. I mean, when you fire it up, you know, mine took. I was curious, so I ran Safari for after the update, and it took a good minute maybe to to fill in those things. So, and it was doing them one at a time. It does it very fast once you have the first time you did it. It was looking through your bookmarks. Ah, okay. It's it's instant. If you just do a create a new tab now on Safari, you'll see that it that's the default blank page. Oh, good. And it does it very very quickly. Okay. So, yeah. No, I think the you know they're using uh, the latest WebKit, which is a very fast JavaScript interpreter. I think comparable to Chrome. So, um, and you know, this is important for them because Safari is also on the iPhone. So they really right. want to keep this thing up, you know? Right. Well, and Microsoft, I, we have a little more after Microsoft, but it's time for Microsoft. <laughs> 31 <laughs> vulnerabilities, uh, in windows. There's some in windows active directory in the kernel itself, in IE, in word, Excel, in works, in IIS, the web server and in search. Unbelievable. Wow. But believe it or not, uh, with all of that, Remember the bad zero-day exploit that we discussed last week. It was in DirectX's Direct Show component for displaying QuickTime, and we gave our listeners that link to the Fix-It button that they could press in order to fix the problem there. Um, For whatever reason, that's not fixed. So there is still a known zero-day exploit where... It's a remote code execution problem. It is in the wild. It is being done. And it involves, if you went to a web page that brings up QuickTime Player uh, that would be played by Direct Show, then there's a known vulnerability there that is being exploited. So disabling that in the meantime, and maybe we're going to need, need to now wait a month. I don't know if Microsoft will do an out-of-cycle patch for this. I don't know what the delay is because, you know, they had the fix-it button um, certainly at this time last week, um, but it's not part of the fixes. What is part is two vulnerabilities in Active Directory, which are critical remote code execution, three vulnerabilities in the print spooler, which are critical remote code execution, eight vulnerabilities in IE, um, you know, again, critical remote code execution, open, especially crafted web page and bang, you're owned two vulnerabilities in word open, especially crafted uh, word doc and something can take you over, um, quote, several in Excel. I think they just got tired of counting um, at this point. So they didn't, <laughs> they didn't say, although I did go to another um, their their other page and counted. That's how I know that it's 31. Uh, a vulnerability in in Windows Works, same thing. Open, especially crafted works file. Um, the RPC remote procedure call has a privilege elevation, so that's not what they call critical. It's just important. Uh, and the kernel has four uh, privilege elevation bugs, and that's two, serious. Th- those have to be critical. Yeah, two yeah. were publicly exp- uh, disclosed, and two were privately uh, shared only with Microsoft. IIS. Uh, their web server has one a vulnerability that involves authentication. When you, if you're challenged for authentication, there's a way that you can send a specially crafted response, which will 
essentially bypass the um, the normal privilege level that you would have authenticating at that level, and you're able to uh, to elevate um, and search. Windows Search has a depending upon like there's some way that you can search and return a file, and that trips it up and uh, and allows an information disclosure vulnerability is what they called it. So not you know not real bad, but overall this is def. I mean it's a definite reboot of your system. Um, I've got all of mine sitting here pending. I didn't want to do it, you know, before the podcast because who knows <laughs> if the machine would survive and come back up afterwards. But I'll do it when we're through recording. <laughs> yes, uh, and and I want to tell all of our listeners, you know, shut down things gracefully. But yeah. uh, this is one. There's, there's so much in this package that uh, it's it's definitely worth a reboot in order to to catch up. And we also talked last week about Adobe's formally. Uh, announced plans of coming into sync with quarterly updates. Well, this being uh, June, which is the, you know, an even quarter in the calendar, and this is Microsoft's Patch Tuesday. It's also Adobe's Patch Tuesday. Um, what I found interesting was that my um, my Acrobat on this machine was giving me no indication of new versions but when i asked it it oh. said oh yeah got something and it also appears that that it is needing to install these sequentially i um just just the other day i installed a brand new install of acrobat uh in my tablet that i'm using at starbucks and i was able to uh download i think maybe it was 8.13 um i mean 8.1.3 but then i had to successively have it do have it apply 0.4.5 and I think that's where it stopped um, so what I'm noticing is when I ask my at my older acrobat on this system it says 8.15 but I know that 8.16 is available so what our listeners need to do is update until it tells you there are no more so don't just do it once. So your your target is if you're using version nine, your major version nine, um, with with day before yesterday's that is Tuesday's update. You we're at nine point one point two. Version eight is at eight point one point six, and version seven is at seven point one point three. So. In any event, what you want to do is just keep, you know, maybe it makes you reboot each time or not, but, you know, keep working at it until it no, until it finally says, okay, whew, there is nothing else. And you should be at 9.1.2, 8.1.6, or 7.1.3. Good. Um, we also had some interesting news in the DNS world um, on June 2nd which was, uh, what, like last week, the .org route was the first major um, route of DNS to receive a DNSSEC signature. Hello. Hello. Oh, sorry. Got distracted. I just had something come or go. I forgot that I always forget to turn my speaker down. Skype. My, Those are, I thought that was a Skype, Skype sound. I ought to just turn that off. So I don't care if people are coming and going. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so last week the .org route was signed, um, which is the first of our major DNS routes to be signed, but also the NIST, the National Institute 
of Standards and Technology has asked ICANN, you know, the main governing body of the Internet, to work with VeriSign, who has been given responsibility to get all of the root name servers signed with DNSSEC by the end of 2009. So by the end of this year, we're going to finally get the root servers signed. You know, the .gov servers were signed a few months ago, which is a, a good thing. That was, you know, mandated by the government and it was made to happen. So now the public servers are going to get themselves signed. And this will just take care great. of that Dan Kaminsky security flaw that uh, we well, talked about. Well, you really need it, – it, it's a move forward. we got a long way to go because you need DNSSEC at both ends. You need oh. a DNSSEC-aware server in order to understand this and verify the signatures that are being given – so the fact that the DNSSEC records are, that is, the signatures are available, that's, a, that, that's a, the, the prerequisite to using them, but you still have to use them. But, you know, so we got a ways to go before, you know, when you actually get a record out the other end, you know, the whole chain has been, you know, like, it's very much like, you know, the way we think of certificate chains, where you need, you know, a, a chain of, 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 certification all the way back to the trusted root. So the same thing has to happen here, but again, it can't happen until it starts. Right. And so it has started, which is uh, way good news. Yeah. And then last thing I just want to mention, I haven't mentioned this for a long time. Um, I developed the perfect paper passwords system when I was needing some way to allow my employees Sue and Greg to roam with their laptops, yet still have really, really robust, secure authentication to GRC. Um, I'm now using it since I'm at Starbucks. So I'm a roamer, too. <laughs> oh, that's neat. Oh, that's and neat. it's just, I have to say, I mean, you know, obviously the stuff I do from the fu- in the future, like CryptoLink, will support perfect paper passwords natively. But it just... It is. It really works, Leo. You know, you. you go, <laughs> Are you, you surprised? <laughs> but, you know, one thing to design it and write it, but and then to actually be a user yeah, of it. No, it's good to eat your own dog food once in a while. That's good. And I was, I was never, I was never using it. But so you go to the page and it says, you know, you, we need C seven, and so you get your little. I have it in my wallet, my little car, my little index, and I go oh, C seven, and I and I type the characters in that it wants, and then also give it my password, so it's something I know and something I have. And it says, okay, fine, here you go. It's like, wow, you know, and I can't give it the wrong one and I can't give it the same one again because it's a, you know, a one-time password system. So but, just to clarify, this is a system you wrote, but it's logging into your corporate VPN, your corporate uh, network. It's a- actually, it's, yeah, it's secure web access okay. to uh, resources that we have. Um, so it's uh, not a our- VPN, but it but it has, a, it's SSL, but it's correct. via the web. Yeah, correct. Correct. Cool. And uses a whole interlocking cookie system. I mean, you have to, uh, I described it all in detail once. You have to receive a cookie when you're at your home address to ver- to like enable the machine to then be a roaming machine. And then, so you have to have that. And then you get an authentication cookie when you are roaming, which is valid for a limited period of time until you, you know, close the browser. So it's a session cookie, not a static cookie. And, you know, I did, I went over the top with security, but, you know, is there such a thing? Can you go over the top? No. Exactly. I think not. 
And uh, I do have a short little blurb uh, about Spinride. There's a, I have a really interesting and fun long one, but since I'm sure this episode is going to go long because it's one of our Q&As that yeah, are oh, never yeah. short, I just thought I'd share a fun short story from someone named, named Nate Friedman. Dane wasn't sure if maybe he was somebody that you knew. Um, I don't and think I'm thinking, so. That doesn't, but I shouldn't say that. Well, he's also in, I noticed now that he's in Santa Rosa and 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 Dane said there was Someone who is in the chat room, I think. That's... Oh, he might be a chat room guy. Anyway, so he said, Steve, I wanted to share my Spinrite story while it was fresh, but would love it if you read this on episode 200. <laughs> okay, deal. Of Security Now. So <laughs> I was all set to read the other one, too. And I thought, well, okay, since Nate's asking for a specific episode number, he gets it. <laughs> Uh, he said, I've been listening to you and Leo for a few months straight now and wish I started sooner. I recently inherited responsibility for a mission critical server with a failing hard drive. The previous administrator had tried to clone the hard drive during nighttime hours three times and failed each time. Mm. Having heard the many success stories about Spinrite, I talked the money people into buying a copy. It found a few bad sectors running at level three, so I ran it again at level four, just oh, just over that section of the drive. Then I went back and properly cloned the hard drive without any trouble to a fresh one, and the server's been humming along like a champ ever since. Excellent. So, you know, Nate, thanks for the story, and uh, another success for Spinrite. We have, Mr. Gibson, uh, some good questions for you. Twelve questions, good and true, from our our wonderful listeners. Questions compiled from grc.com slash feedback, including uh, questions about brief. Oh, and actually, there was a bunch of stuff from last week, some errata-ish questions, okay. too. I, I just put my foot in my mouth at one point so that's Uh-oh. no that's question number one i wanted to get it right off the top of the show so we will we will put pull steve's foot out of his mouth in a moment <laughs> before we do that though i do want to tell you all about go to assist express the easy way to provide instant tech support for your customers you're there you're here they're there um how do you support them well there are many choices i know that i've used all of them let me tell you why I use GoToAssist Express. I use it with my mom last night because it is fast. It's easy. It has a lot of features designed for the IT and support pro. You can chat with your client. You can work with up to eight machines simultaneously unattended too. you know, you don't have to have them be around, which is really great. Uh, you can provide tech support and help to your customers or clients on a Mac or a PC from a Mac or a PC, fix that problem quickly, access files, transfer files from your computer to theirs. If you've got a registry fix or a patch or whatever, you can just move it right over. Uh, I love it because it gives you a complete list of running software, what security software is installed, so you really can save a lot of time. It's easy for you. It's easy for your customers, too. They're going to have this nice feeling of security that that you're using Go to Assist from the folks at Citrix, so you know it's going to be secure, it's going to be fast, it's going to be easy to use. And you can try it free because the folks at Citrix know they've got such a good product. They're going to they're gonna always let you try it free for one month just so you get an idea. Uh, I'll give you the, I'll give you the, work, the walkthrough of how this, uh, how this works. So you start your session with a click, just like all the services from Citrix. 
It makes it really, really simple. Even if your client doesn't have any software installed, you'll send them an invitation or you can even be in chat and you'll say, here's a link, click this link. You, it's very simple. They click, suddenly uh, their screen is shared with yours. You, By the way, you can share yours with theirs as well. So it's two-way screen sharing. That's unique in this kind of uh, field. Integrated live chat, as I mentioned. So you can say, here's what I'm doing. You can ask them, you know, what? what why is your password... One, two, three, four. Uh, do you mind if I change that? <laughs> you can send them the new password securely because it's an SSL connection. You can diagnose the problem. You can fix the problem. You'll know what operating system, what running programs, security software. Uh, this couldn't be better. Go to Assist by Citrix. Of course, 128-bit end-to-end encryption. Free customer service 24-7. And you can try it absolutely free right now. Just go to go to Assist, G-O-T-O-A-S-S-I-S-T dot com slash security go to assist.com slash security we thank him so much for supporting security now this you know this this show is great because uh our we get the best sponsors sponsors who care as much as much about security as we do uh and uh, citrix is absolutely the best in this particular field go to assist.com slash security let them know that steve and leo sent you all right, Steve, are you ready for some questions? Let's do them. All right, starting with the foot and mouth. <laughs> uh, foot and mouth extraction. Jim Millard in Kansas City, Missouri, picked up on, and you wrote this, not me, Steve's boneheaded statement about IPv6 and consumer switches. He says, Steve, I posted this in the news groups, but you uh, made a mistake. I'm sure he didn't mean this in a mean way, just wants to get it corrected. In your characterization that commodity switches will break... I'm paraphrasing when we move, if we move to IPv6. I presume Jim works for somebody like, you know, Linksys or somebody. Recall that a switch, unless outfitted with extra functionality that is not typical in consumer equipment, operates at layer 2, not layer 3. A switch keeps a list of MAC addresses for each port, not the IP address, so VP6 is not going to bug it at all. I know. Oh, <laughs> oh don't and, feel so bad. It's not that Jim needs to work at, at Linksys or somewhere. You wouldn't believe. I mean, I'm impressed with our listeners because they picked when that up I right got away. when I picked up the mail. I thought, yeah. "Wow, look at all this mail." Unfortunately, half of it was people saying, "Uh, I don't think so, Gibson." Yeah. You know, have you? You know, didn't you have your coffee that morning? Um, I mean, you know, I know. And I, we've talked about this so many times on the show. It's like, okay, I don't even know what I was thinking. Right. I think this is what they call a brain fart, yeah. Leo. Yeah. Um, you know, just for clarification, um, a, a switch, exactly as Jim and many other listeners said, uh, runs at layer two, meaning that it's at the, at, the Mac ad- at the Mac addressing level, not the IP addressing level. So it doesn't, it's not even aware of the of the payload of the ethernet packets it's switching the ethernet packets based on mac address which is what we understand is unique on the physical local lan thanks to mac addresses being unique when when a machine an active machine not the switch itself which is sort of passive when when an active machine is trying to send an um an ethernet packet to an to a an, a machine on the LAN by IP address, it uses an ARP packet, ARP address resolution protocol. 
and it broadcasts it to to the last IP on the network, which is a special. I'm sorry, the last, um, the last. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. The, the, it, it broadcasts it uh, on the network um, so that so that all devices on the network will hear it, and it says, you know, which of you has this IP that is is has that IP assigned to um, your adapter? Well, one of them will respond. It's like, hey, I'm the guy with that IP. the The switch is passively monitoring this dialogue and it it knows which wires that is which ports these various chunks of the LAN are plugged into so it memorizes the MAC addresses living on each of its different ports and that's how for example a switch can be the same switch can be used not only for IP traffic but for for example Novell's older IPX SPX protocol which is a non it's ip related but it's not the same protocol so again yes jim was right i don't know what i was thinking when i you know rambled off the the wrong uh, you statement knew but better. I wanted, you knew better i wanted to correct the record for everybody who first of all for people who i may have confused with that and i wanted to acknowledge the the torrent of of corrections that i received and to thank everyone for making sure that i knew what i was talking about no one doubts that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's move on to question two. John Muser in Indianapolis, Indiana, wonders about non-VPNs. He writes, Steve, your non-VPN solution. We This was somebody who had written this in, right? Uh, oh, no, you were talking about this was the third subject of uh, last yes. week's show. Of course, sounds yeah. a lot like SSH port forwarding with something like a port knocking demon to hide that there is a port listening. Is it? Um yeah, th- there are we also got a ton of responses to um to my talking about this notion of a non-VPN solution, sort of, you know, a secure connection approach, and I'm I'm gratified because it it's very clear from the response that our listeners have a huge interest in secure connections. Um so so I wanted to clarify a little bit briefly about how this is different. Um, with SSH port forwarding, you run a essentially a listening service on your local machine, which is listening for connections to the so-called local host address, you know, uh, which we've talked about, 127.0.0.1. So it's a server in as much as it's it's looking for connections to that address it's also a client of the remote end which is functioning as a server so the idea is you tell your email i'm sorry your um your 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 uh, yeah your email client or your pop client or whatever to to connect to your own machine at whatever port you've set up this ssh listener to be listening on it accepts the connection and then it in turn reaches out and and securely connects using ssh secure protocol connects to the remote endpoint running at your actual destination um and and so that's how the conversation works 
my approach is that I talked about last week is is a little different in that 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 very much like many Unix solutions, this doesn't require anything in the kernel. It's it this approach is is essentially able to run a a, a daemon which is listening to that is the SSH approach is able to run a daemon which is listening for connections to a port and it then forwards them to somewhere else. So it's nice in that it's able to run in user space. My approach, then the one that I will be taking with the development of CryptoLink, um, will involve a, a kernel driver which inserts itself in between the, the NIC, the network LAN adapter, and the rest of the PC. That is, before the protocol stack that does all of the work and just before the packets leave or just after they come in. So so the CryptoLink driver will have raw access to the actual packet. So what that allows is much more transparency of operation. So, for example, you would not need to reconfigure your email or or pop or Windows networking or anything telling it, to aim at your own machine, you'd actually tell it, connect out there to the target. And so this, this the, the CryptoLink driver in this case would see that happening, intercept the packets on their way as they've left the protocol driver just before they get to the, the LAN adapter, the, the machine's NIC, and it would change them and encrypt them on the fly so that this system just works without the added overhead of starting up uh, the port forwarder and configuring it and so forth. So that's really how my approach is different. And as for the port knocking side, again, that's another clever solution, which is able to run in in user land, sort of as, as a user level application over on the receiving system to to allow ports or to allow packets to and we've talked about port forwarding and or, or port knocking in the past to allow packets to to hit a firewall and be noticed and the sequence or content of those packets uh, in in some cases is used as a key that then causes something to open a port on the fly which then allows the actual traffic to come in what i have the first of of a number of patents pending on is I've figured out a way for the the connection opening SYN packet to self-authenticate so that it it itself contains the authentication information allowing it to be identified as coming from a legitimate matching CryptoLink client that shares the same key as the recipient. And so while, while you've got CryptoLink running, um, n- your system is completely stealth. It appears that you have no ports open at all when, in fact, they're all opportunities for CryptoLink package to come in. And that's the other cool thing is that um, which, which will allow CryptoLink to uh, establish connections more robustly is you could send packets to any port number. And again, because the CryptoLink driver is listening before the computer, that is just after the packet is received and before it starts being processed, it's able to look at these packets, authenticate them, and say, oh, hey, this is a special one for me, and then it's able to do its job. 
So there's a bunch of extra magic happening. Um, I'm glad for our listeners' interest, and uh, it's going to be fun to be developing this. Be careful. You keep promoting it. Pretty soon there's going to start being people storming your doors <laughs> saying, where is CryptoLink? We're getting, we're getting, you're giving us more and more reason to don't want it. I'm excited. Really excited. Brad Beinhoff in uh, San Diego, California says, no VPN port forwarding. Sounds like no VPN or non, I he probably means non VPN, right? would have to either A, use port forwarding to let the secure ports through your router, or B, put the non-VPN server machine into a DMZ and rely on the software firewall plus non-VPN authorization encryption to remain stealthed. Former might be a little tough for the average user, and uh, it's difficult to provide help given the wide array of router interfaces out there. Yeah, They don't even call it port forwarding on many routers. So you can't even say, well, you need to do port forwarding, you know, because every router has its own terminology for what you're doing uh, the latter a dmz is slightly less difficult but still requires router reconfiguration to disable the hardware firewall anyway didn't you tell us years ago not to rely on software firewalls so what's the story steve well i wanted to i, I selected this question because i realized i had inadvertently also confused some people um one of the things that i hope will make the vpn very popular is that very in a very hamachi like way it will support nat traversal so it will not be necessary for you to to pre-configure your routers you'll be able to use nat traversal however there's absolutely no way around the need for a third party if both endpoints are behind nat We've talked about NAT traversal in the past. I'm sure probably I'll bring it up again when I'm deep in the middle of actually solving the problem and characterizing various NAT routers. But the idea is that if if one of the two parties is that wants to connect is behind a NAT router, well, the one behind the NAT router is able to send packets out through the NAT and directly to the other party that's not behind a NAT router. That works. Um, if neither party's behind a NAT router, of course, you have no problem. If both parties are behind a NAT router, the problem is that they're not able to to send packets to each other because, because we know how NAT routers function as very good hardware-level firewalls. They allow, they allow the egress of traffic, and then traffic that's expected back in can, can come in but they don't allow unsolicited traffic to get in. So the the solution is for a third party, some like a so-called rendezvous server, a third party that's not behind a NAT router, standing out where both of them are able to access it, like out on the public internet, they send traffic to that third party. The third party analyzes the traffic, figures out how their NATs are mapping between the private network and the public network. And then through the connection that they initiated to the third party, that third party sends instructions back to each of the parties behind their respective NATs saying, here's here's how you need to send packets to each other. They then simultaneously send packets to each other with the hope that, that the, that 
the transparency that's been created by the presence of the third party providing them this extra information will allow their packets to get back into each other's NAT. So it's it's tricky, but it you know obviously works. Um, we know that NAT traversal, uh, Skype has it, Hamachi has it, um, our, our our show sponsors have it. It can be done. I'm going to do it too, but it breaks the my TNO, my trust no one mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. because there you have to have a third party. And the other problem that many people experience with Hamachi is if Hamachi was ever down, and unfortunately Hamachi spent a lot of time being down, you couldn't initiate new connections. If the third party's missing, then you're you're out of luck. So so I recognize that there are more sophisticated users who can configure their NAT router, who don't need a zero configuration solution. What they would prefer is a, first of all, absolutely trust no one solution, no third party involved ever. And in return for that, they'll have to do a little bit of configuration. But then they also get the reliability of not relying on a third party in addition to the additional security. So CryptoLink will work both ways. It'll work in a zero configuration mode and tra- and do NAT traversal. But for professional people, I mean, the way I would configure it for myself is I would configure my router to to allow external traffic in to the CryptoLink server, knowing then that I'm able to accept connections from anywhere whether behind a NAT or not, because I've essentially made the receiving end transparent. So um, so I just wanted to clarify that, that it will work both ways in a, in a just works fashion where it may be necessary to rely on a third party, but for our sophisticated users, um, you won't need to use that. Very good. Again, you're making us salivate. <laughs> I am too. I can't wait to get started on it. So I have a so, little more work to get done, then I'm on it. So you haven't actually started it. We should just make that clear. No, I've got uh, I've got a ton of a ton of notes. I've got intellectual property stuff working, but I've there's I've I've got a, a short list of things that I just I want to finish that I've invested hugely in already. That it's just dumb not to finish them. So I'm going to get them finished. You know, I talk about the third-party cookie th- stuff, the DNS spoofability, the DNS benchmark, um, and just a few other things. And and once those are out of the way, and those they're almost finished. I just need mostly documentation. So okay. I'm I'm on it. I'm on it. Yeah, you, you know, you forget that there's all this other kind of prep work that you have to do before you can even begin. Well, and frankly, I mean, I'm, at least it'd be prudent I'm, to do. I'm glad to have the time to think this through. I mean, yeah. remember, Leo, you and I were in Vancouver, and I, I right. ran through the list of several pages of things that CryptoLink would do that nothing else has ever done. And you were you looked at me like, oh my God, this is going to be really it good. And really I said, cool, yeah. Yeah, but it, I just, you know, it's just me. So well, you know what I, carpenters say? You say, measure twice, cut once. Yes, and planning is really important. I'm, I'm, you know, we were talking about um, how I was looking at curricula for uh, uh, high school students for uh, programming and so forth. And we got to, we have a couple ideas about that in our Q and A. Oh, good. Yep. One of the books I found is called How to Design Programs. It's a wonderful book that's been used as a curriculum at Yale and, and Rice and uh, MIT and a lot of other places. Uh, we, I mentioned this before. It uses a Doctor Scheme, which is a stripped down version of Lisp, but it very much focuses on planning. Before mm-hmm. you write one line of code, it really teaches you a methodology 
uh, so that you think you do what you're doing right now. You really think about what you're going to do and you know what you're going to do before you write a line of code. Oh, and I forgot that um, as a consequence of, of this last week of all the email and the, the dialogue in our news groups, I realized that this notion of a secure connection is not what I want to do. Oh. What I want to do is what I call tunnel on demand. So, so it's just as transparent, except that you're running a full VPN with all the additional features that it provides. Like you can send multiple connections through a single tunnel. You can have many different types of traffic. Um, what I was trying to avoid was the overhead of having to start something. And, and, and I'm used to having to do that with OpenVPN because and it takes with OpenVPN, it takes several seconds of, you know, starting it up and it scrolls through all the stuff it's doing. And it's, you know, it, it, there's all this happening before you get your tunnel established. And so it's, you know, it's definitely overhead. And so I realized that's, you know, there's no reason it has to take that long. A, ta- a tunnel can be established almost instantaneously. So what you want is you want the ability to establish a tunnel on demand. I mean, like literally on the fly. And so there's no reason if that can't be done. And that's what I'm going to do. Oh, great. So it was a good exercise see? to sort of think see? that all through. You see? Yep. You see? <laughs> I, I see what I mean. Uh, this is next is uh, John Clayton in Billings, Montana. He wants to set the record straight. Help us do so about Microsoft's Click Once and Firefox. This was that uh, weird .NET extension that was uh, added. For .NET 3.5 that yeah. appeared. People found it, discovered it. Brian Krebs writing for the Washington Post in uh, in Firefox. Right. And there was no uninstall button. Well, there is in Windows 7, but not in it was, previous It was version. disabled. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, by the way, afterwards went back and read the whole three. You know, there's a there was a bug report filed with Firefox about this. <laughs> and, and Firefox explained why it wasn't their responsibility to protect you against this. You know, it's a very, right. it's a very interesting discussion. I encourage people to read the, the, uh, the whole bug thread. But here is a, here's an, a good message that talks about it as well. Uh, just listen to episode 199. As a .NET developer with firsthand experience with Microsoft's ClickOnce technology, I felt there were some misconceptions that needed to be addressed. It won't be uh, winning any awards for easy implementation, but ClickOnce is, simply put, a way for packaging and deploying thick client applications. Uh, these applications run on your desktop like any other that you would otherwise download, not in your browser. They get an icon in the start menu. They get an entry and add remove programs. The user is always prompted to install the application, so there's nothing silent, as you implied. ClickOnce even supports Authenticode signatures and gives a warning if the signature can't be verified, as in the case of, a, say, a self-signed certificate. The plugin that Microsoft installed into Firefox simply provides a handler for the .application files that initiate the install process. Without the plugin, the user would just get XML. The browser wouldn't know what to do with this, you know, XML file. It wouldn't know that this is, you know, an installer prequel. Right. Uh, as a full-time Firefox user, if I want to install a ClickOnce application, the last thing I want to have to do is, is, you know, launch Internet Explorer to do it. While I'm not defending the way Microsoft installed this update, I do have to present a Therotian argument. Paul Therot, of course, the uh, host of Windows Weekly. If I look at the add-ons right now, I see that Skype... Office 2007, Adobe Acrobat, Apple iTunes, 
and Apple QuickTime all have their hooks in Firefox. These are all independent applications that installed stuff into Firefox without notifying the user. If Adobe didn't install their plugin, PDFs wouldn't open in the browser. If Apple didn't install QuickTime and video, uh, the QuickTime plugin, videos wouldn't play automatically. These work the same as the ClickOnce add-ins. They're just handling special files. And this is, by the way, this is a traditional architecture for browser plugins. Um, it's a BHO, basically. That's what the Internet Explorer term. I'm adding this. This is editorializing. Leo speaking. Back to uh, the uh, email. I should just shut up. Uh, uh, these work the same as the ClickOnce add-ins. They're just handling special files. Skype, iTunes, and Office. Those have even less business being there without notification. My point is that when anyone else does this kind of thing, no one cares. When Apple does it, people thank Steve Jobs. When Google does it, people wonder why it wasn't there in the first place. But when Microsoft does it, all hell breaks loose. I hope this helps you and your listeners better understand Microsoft's technology. Always look forward to Security Now every week. Keep up the good work. And Rob, our next questioner has sort of a different take. Should I just go right segue right into it? Let's go do that. Okay. So Rob uh, is near Ottawa, Canada. Here are his thoughts about reducing the security risks for ClickOnce. He says, Steve, thank you for pointing out the monopolistic behavior of Microsoft by installing a Firefox plugin for ClickOnce that significantly reduces security for Firefox browsers. Microsoft should be shot and raked over the coals for this. You should have noted that for quite some time now, there has been a third-party extension for Firefox that adds the ClickOnce capabilities to Firefox. It's called FF ClickOnce. So the MS.NET update that included its own Firefox extension wasn't even necessary. In my opinion, if Microsoft wanted to include its own Firefox extension, it should have made it a separate optional install in MS Update. Since it did not do this and made it a mandatory installation when you install .NET 3.5... One can only speculate that Microsoft wanted to make its .NET framework more desirable to developers by increasing the number of users who use a browser with ClickOnce capabilities. As you noted, ClickOnce is very dangerous. Just by clicking on something on a web page, an application will be downloaded, installed, and run. It would be easy to trick someone in clicking, uh, into clicking something on a web page that would run uh, you know, with a malicious uh, web page. Best to disable or uninstall the MS ClickOnce Firefox extension, but if you need to use it, I would highly recommend clicking the Options button right next to the Disable button for the extension and enabling the option that asks the end user for confirmation before running the ClickOnce app. In other words, it's best to turn ClickOnce into Click Twice. (laughs) I think he's right. Much safer. By the way, that's the default behavior of the third-party FF ClickOnce Firefox extension, however, not the default behavior of the Microsoft add-on. P.S. ClickOnce is very similar to Java's Web Start, but unlike Java Web Start, ClickOnce is unproven technology and likely has security holes. By default, Java's Web Start apps run in a sandbox in a restricted mode, which means they don't have access to some system resources like local files. That's, to me, always been the benefit of Java over ActiveX and these other Microsoft technologies. Yep. That, 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 you know, you're installing an application that, with Microsoft that has full application privileges. Right. No sandbox. But publishers can remove those restrictions by signing their web start applications with the JAR signer tool that comes with JDK. So you better trust the developer noted in the digital signature before running a signed Java web start app, too. So there's two different points of view uh, on this issue. What do you think? Well, I just liked them because it was lots of good information. Yes. We We understand now that what this is doing, Microsoft is promoting a brand new standard for the industry saying to .NET developers, 
rather than telling people to click this link to download the setup file, then you 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 know then you get that on your system. And many people are like, okay, wait, I downloaded it, but the box disappeared, and I forgot where. I mean, I've had that happen. You know, it was like, okay, where'd that darn thing go that I just downloaded? And so they're trying to make this a simpler process, so that you you know if you want to run something on your machine, you want to install it locally, you just click it, click the button on the browser. And, you know, it does so. Um, it's hard to say what the long-term future of that will be. But, you know, it's, you know, it's another thing Microsoft is doing for making their software more accessible. Um, that is software built with the .NET uh, framework. And, and I really do like what Rob suggested. And that is, if you're going to leave this in Firefox and have it installed, we now understand clearly what it does, that by all means... Selecting that option to ask for confirmation, you know, that makes much more sense than than being fooled into clicking something and then, you know, and that's all you have to do and have this thing run. So click twice makes a lot more sense than click once. Yeah. And what is your response to that whole thing that, well, Skype does this? Well, I think... Um, uh, well, I looked, and I don't. I don't have Skype running in my uh, on my system, so I didn't have an add-on. I was curious what other things were there, and I did not see the the list that are that the first questioner had. But um, certainly, there are things. I mean, I, I, it certainly is reasonable that that would be happening. Right. Okay. Let's move on. Interesting subject, though. Yeah, and it I is. think well, you're going to always have a debate over over what you know. What's appropriate? What's inappropriate? What needs to be automatic and and what needs not? I mean the and okay. So say that Skype asked you before installing this, given that that uh, we're correct and there is something installed in Firefox. Um, I would opt, I think, for not having more junk in my browser. You know, people talk about how long it takes Firefox to get started sometimes, and it's it's having to parse and load and find and set up all these different things so that they're so that they're you know they're extensions to its to its core functionality and i know that a freshly installed firefox tends to launch a lot faster than an old one that's had a chance to you know collect all these barnacles all over it and so you know as a minimalist i would generally if given an option say ah uh, no i you know i use skype for this particular purpose i'm no i don't need links to be Skype enabled or enhanced in order to launch Skype sessions. That's not something I'm going to do. So I'd rather not have that in my system. So, you know, I would opt and I imagine our listeners would generally opt for being informed and being trusted with having, you know, the ability to answer the question. On the other hand, I know lots of users, you know, some who are friends of mine who are non-computer people who are like, uh, do I want that or not? I mean, they would have no no grounds for determining for for even no for idea. Them yeah. what the right answer is. Do right. I need that or not? And this and and their their sense is it's it need. Do I need it or right. not? If you told I don't them, even know if I need it. I don't know what these are. Right. So if you told them you don't need it, they're like, oh, okay, good. Thank you very much. I'm right. glad I don't need that because right. you know they're a little anxious about needing anything right. uh, that involves the PC. But you know. For some people who are like avid Skype users, the convenience of that would offset the cost of having it installed in their browser. So, I mean, it really is a problem because 
what we're doing, and here Microsoft has just taken us to another, another level, so we're making these systems ever more complex. We know the complexity is is the enemy of security. We know that especially today because Microsoft has just fat patched 31 vulnerabilities that are a consequence of the complexity of the software that they're creating. So, you know, it, it, it is certainly a trade-off. I would opt for having the choice, but, you know, that's not a choice we're being given because it causes more problems for these companies that then have tech support. It's like, well, do I need to inst- click yes or no on this? It's a mess. It's a mess. It is. This is always the trade-off. We've mentioned it many times before, convenience versus security. Yep. Michael in Missouri takes issue. Boy, we have a lot of unhappy. <laughs> yeah. But, I'm, you know, I commend you for putting this stuff in so we can respond to it. That's good. I like it. He says, hello, I've been listening to you for some time, and I feel the need to write to you to address some issues. You claim to address security, yet you fail to truly take to heart the Linux on the desktop platform. I started out a very proud Microsoft fan myself, and I understand that many users are Microsoft users. But as a technical person, I learned the true power of Linux and other open source technologies. Let me make it clear, Ubuntu can be used with no experience or knowledge. However, Linux provides a degree of control that you just can't get with Windows. Linux is modular, does not hide its code in ones and zeros. You know what you're getting when you use Linux. Please do not dismiss me as a Linux fanboy. I do program, and I understand the choices that both systems make, but even Microsoft declares Linux as its competitor. Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer admitted Linux is a serious competitor. In any case, I just wish you would truly look into what Linux has become, even spend an episode addressing it as a security option. You did so with Windows 7. The next problem I have is with you... Steve Gibson, not making your code open source. You could do whatever you want with your code, and it's nice to keep some code closed source, but I just can't get over your reason for doing so. In one of your episodes, you said you don't make your code open source because you were worried it would allow hackers to use it. To me, that seems arrogant, to assert that your code is above any others without merit or reason. However, in a security sense, it seems you're condoning security by obscurity, something we, we, uh, we you know, mock. I thank you for your podcast, and I enjoy listening to them. I just wish you'd be a little more open capital O minded. <laughs> okay. Um, well, well I, can I say one thing? Yeah. From day one, we've, we've always said this is a windows security show. I mean, we really focus on windows, uh, because most users are using windows. We don't cover security on the Macintosh particularly. Uh, we haven't covered security on Linux particularly. We do have other shows that talk about those subjects. In fact, we're going to talk about Ubuntu next. Right after this show, we've got John O'Bacon from Ubuntu to talk about Johnny Jackalope. So we do have other shows that cover this stuff. I don't know if this is something you consider part of your portfolio. Well, it's not. And for a couple of reasons. I mean, I, there is a limit to my to my scope, to what I am able to cover. Right. And, you know, I live in Windows, so it, it's accessible to me. What I the way I I deal with things like Linux is we spend a lot of time on fundamental technology, on the way things work, which is universally applicable to all platforms. You know, when we talked about crypto, that's not Windows crypto. You know, it's as much Linux and Mac crypto as it is Windows crypto. You know, it's fundamental stuff. So, so, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I recognize the validity of what Michael said. However, 
the and I also know that we there is certainly a Linux population who listen to the show. Um, and I I can only say, well, you know, as you said, Leo, we're we're primarily a Windows security focused um, uh, presentation, but also heavy on fundamental technology fundamentals, which are universal and apply to everyone, which is why I think we've got Linux users who are right, listeners. Right. And we're Windows, except when we're not. <laughs> and as for my source being open code, my, my code being open source, um, maybe someday, I mean, I can easily foresee a point someday when I'm no longer a commercial producer of code mm. that I'd be happy to share my stuff openly. But this is all, you know, uh, Spinrite is a commercial program that that you know is my bread and butter crypto link i hope will grow into the same thing um there was some discussion even of this forthcoming dns benchmark which has turned into just a beautiful piece of work that i'm i'm going to be very proud of and have a have a lot of fun sharing with our listeners as soon as it's finished and you know somebody posted in the news group steve you know you're doing this thing and it's freeware why aren't you making it open source um when and Michael did misunderstand something that certainly wasn't arrogance, me believing that my code is better than anybody else's. That's why I don't want I don't want other hackers to use it. What I was concerned with is it would be very simple for for malicious versions of my code to be created. If if here was the whole package right. and you you assemble it. And you get something that looks exactly like what GRC produces. Right. Then they could stick their own stuff in and say, oh, look, this came from GRC. Obviously, you can trust it because it's from Steve. Now, it's certainly true that someone could start from scratch and create something that looks exactly like mine. But that's substantially more work. I mean, that's a lot more work than just, you know adding some little bit of something to an existing body of code. Also, the fact is the fact that it's all in assembler means that it's much less accessible to a large body of people. So I wonder how much use it would be as open source. But more than anything, you know, I'm not done leveraging my work for the support of myself and Greg and Sue. And so, you know, the DNS benchmark is free but I regard free as separate from open. I mean, it, it is, it's been a labor of love. It's, it's fundamentally, it's all I've done to this point this year. So I'm hoping it's going to be useful and valuable. People will come to GRC in order to get a copy and some will go, Oh, look, spin, right. That's thing still around. I, you know, right. I'm going to read some testimonials and maybe they're going to buy a copy. And so that's what's really been the model for GRC for a long time. It thus shields up and all the other freeware that I've produced and, and that all the things I give away, you know, we're still a commercial enterprise, despite the fact that I'm trying to do everything I can, you know, to give back to the community. Would you consider, because I would like to see your code, open sourcing end of life applications? Stuff that's that's obsolete? Or are there are there macros in there that yeah there's still you don't wanna, I guess I you know, proprietary I, code yeah that you I don't do I do feel proprietary yeah. uh, proprietary about it you know it's it's stuff I've developed carefully and painfully that you know that and often put a lot of time into 
that you know makes my stuff small and fast and special. So yeah, no, this is yeah. this is frequently the case. With, even though you know maybe that the, that program is not in use, there's libraries in there that you still use that you don't want to release and things like that. I don't well, think anybody and, should be. I, I don't think there's any onus on anybody to do open source. If you choose to do open source, that's great. But no programmer, there's no, I, I think it's actually inappropriate to kind of urge programmers to, to release their stuff. Well, and that's I a think, choice you have to make. I think the other thing that's a little confusing, certainly this was sort of the, the genesis of the comment in the news group recently, is what I have is a very, I mean, a phenomenally open development process. For, I mean, it's already, if you were to look at grc.dns, which is the news group at, at news.grc.com, you'd see literally thousands of postings with us interacting, me interacting with a, a group of interested people who were saying, hey, Steve, you know, right-clicking really, you know, here really ought to do this. And I, I think about it, I go, yes, that's a very good point. And now the app has that. And, you know, it's now locale aware for people to it, it'll export a CSV, a comma separated values file. So you can save all your benchmark results. And basically they're they've been responsible for hugely broadening the scope of what I was going to offer. They've also been responsible indirectly for this thing never ending. Um, <laughs> but but we're, we're still getting closer. And I'm really pleased with what it is because I think a DNS benchmark is going to be very valuable for people. And I, I know that the same thing is going to happen with, with CryptoLink. We'll set up a news group. Actually, it's already there, grc.cryptolink. And people will say, hey, I have this need. And if it looks to me like... That's something I hadn't thought of that more than this one guy has. It's like, oh, good point. I'm glad you brought that up because I'd rather know now than later. And so it's 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 a little confusing that the development process is so transparent and so open. And I mean, it's fantastic for me because I'm able to just churn through. I'm able to implement things and say, okay, here's a new version and these guys look at it and they they pound on it and they go yep you got it or oops you forgot this over here and so it's just it's an amazing environment for developing yet i'm the final arbiter i'm not sharing the code i'm not sharing the decisions i'm taking responsibility for it ultimately what i produce is mine yet in the case of the dns benchmark i'm making it freely available for everyone so it's it's a it's a model that that has we that we've proven uh, and it's just fantastically productive. I really like it. And boy, you know, I never get things finished because everyone keeps wanting new things, but it just ends up getting better and better. Right. And I know that, that that's going to influence CryptoLink's development, too. Good. Mike Potts, Columbus, Ohio, has a recommendation for teaching programming to young people. We've been talking about that a lot because I just have a fantasy that I might sometime want to teach a class to my <laughs> I think kids' that's high school. Happen. <laughs> I have a feeling it might. Uh, hi, Steve. This note is more for Leo and also for other listeners who want to help younger people who are learning to program. I like an open source program called Basic 256. It's available at kidbasic.sourceforge.net. means it's open source. Pre-built Windows binaries, source code, and Ubuntu packages are available. The article, Why Johnny Can't Code on Salon inspired basic 256 
This program is easy to learn and use. There are reasonable tutorials available. Some sleuthing in the source material will find some nice extras. But really what sets this program apart is that it has a small graphics window. The programmer is given an approximately 300 by 300 pixel graphics window with all grin 16 colors and enough primitives to do some real work. Circles, rectangles, dots, etc. Sure, you could teach the classic algorithm of have the computer guess your number between 1 and 100, which is my favorite beginner problem, but nothing generates more excitement, I agree, or holds their interest more than having them generate their own primitive Civil War, dodgeball, or soccer game. This program held my 14-year-old's interest for several months. What he really learned from this experience was one very important programming lesson. The computer did exactly what he told it to do, not what he wanted it to do, but what he said to do. You're... Uh, you can always get more experience, but I don't think you can get a deeper lesson than than that. That's true. That is the fundamental lesson of yeah. programming. Computers just do what you say. You can't get mad. They just did what you told them to do. When Basic 256 was starting to wear off, I spent a couple of days explaining book-only processor memory cycles and 8-bit assembly language to him. I didn't think of looking for an emulator, but maybe now I'll look for that PDP-8 emulator you guys found. Thanks for a great copy of Netcast. My copy of Spinrite equals one bad hard disk equals zero. <laughs> um, I took a look, and I really think this looks pretty neat, Leo. You may remember the other sort of graphic-enabled learning language was Logo. Right, Turtle Graphics, and, yeah. Turtle Graphics. And what it offered was that immediacy of feedback. And, you know, we were talking about the Tower of Hanoi uh, relative to the PDP-8 right. and the teletype going, ching, 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 right. ching, 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 you know, right. t- putting out Xs. But this thing... This this kid this basic two fifty six it's a really nice integrated environment where you have code you write code on the left and then in the upper right is a are all your variables so you're able to see which I think is really important the current state of all the variables in real time that is you know at that point and then below is a graphic window. So that, you know, so you're able to write some code that says, you know, circle at this location of this size and it goes blink, and there it is. I mean, and that's like, hey, cool. Yeah. How about now? How, how would a loop work where I change the X and Y coordinates and suddenly and you got circles all over the place? And, uh, you know, again, I, I just I wanted to share this because I think it is a, an, an interesting, very accessible way of like letting people play with you know simple uh, you know simple programming language that modifies variables and has loops and actually does something visual there are a lot of uh, debates this is you know as, as i started researching this i found so many debates about how to do this what's the best way to do it and i think you're right i think you can't knock getting a kid excited some way or other yeah and certainly that's too, how we did it if it's too dry, right. you're going to lose a lot of people. Right. Because no, they're going to go, oh, who cares Every single that? one of us in our generation uh, got excited because, you know, learned because we got excited by usually small computers. In your case, a PDPA, but my case, an Atari, many people, Apple or Commodore, and, uh, and, and figured it out on our own. We weren't taught, but we figured it out. But I think now, you know, that's, that's the debate is, well, is that the best way to start out? Um, and, but I think you're right. If you don't get excited about it, if you're not inspired and turned on by it, there's no there's no point. In and also, Leo, farther. times have changed. Back then, a teletype spitting out X's 
was exciting. That was a lot of that was sensory yeah. overload for us back then. This, these now, kids are a little different. Yeah, I don't think you can possibly censor overload a modern teenager no. these no, you're days. You're right. You're right on that one. So it takes a lot more to get there. To, you know, to get to the same level. Well, thanks for the uh, thanks for the uh, the uh, input. Yeah, I really appreciate do check that, it out. Mike. I think yeah. our listeners should too. Yeah. Yeah, anyone who's interested in like dabbling around with simple programming, this Basic 256 is very cool. I will take a look. Greg M. in Fort Wayne, Indiana, wonders about expired SSL certificates. Danger, danger, Will Robinson. You wrote that in, but I had no. He 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 wrote that. He wrote that. Danger. By the way, somebody uh, took your backwards. my my Banani patrol your narrows and uh, sent me the reverse and it, did, it was perfect. I was very impressed. <laughs> Sounded just like an alien. Um, hi Stephen Leo. First, I want to thank you for a great podcast. You helped me to ace my Security Plus certification. Yes, the podcast on encryption came at a perfect time. After listening to the SSL and uh, TLS podcasts, a question came to mind that I do not recall you're ever talking about. Neither was this covered in my Security Plus class either. What about an expired SSL certificate? Not that I'd use a site with an expired certificate, but many everyday users might just click buy any warnings and continue on. If everything else with a, with a cert is okay, would a user's data still be encrypted? Oh, that's a good question. Thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good word. What happens when they expire? A really good question. Yeah. We've never talked about ever uh, this exactly that, this notion of expiring certificates. I'm annoyed by it because it seems primarily designed to guarantee revenue right. to the certificate issuers. Um, number one, of course, in the world being VeriSign. Um, and believe me, every two or three years, they get more money from me. Um, however, there is nothing insecure about an expired certificate other than the fact that it is expired. I have, I have visited websites where I got an expired certificate warning. Now, I'm immediately worried about, okay, well, what does this mean about the management of the website right. that they would have an expired certificate? If I check, and I and what I have, normally it's only been expired like that day or maybe the day before. So it's not like they've survived a long time. They're probably scurrying around. <laughs> oh, boy, it expired. We forgot. You know, exactly. They're like trying to cram a, an emergency, you know, recertification through VeriSign or whomever at, as quickly as they can in order to, to replace it. Um, but it the, the certificate continues to work. It is just as secure. Now, I'll, I'll add a caveat to that to say, well, you know, Technically, the longer something like this exists, the greater the chance is for it being hacked. Right. Um, so, so in theory, you expire these because. Well, also there's there's that the certificate implies a representation of you, your existence, your organization, your location, your you know your going concern which is being made by the signer of the certificate. So the signer, you know, in, in my examples, often VeriSign, is saying, well, yes, we've checked you out and, you know, you're breathing and you're a good person and, and you were a Boy Scout once, so we're going to sign the certificate for you. Uh, but if you suddenly go to the dark side, uh, within a couple of years, this certificate will have expired. So our representation 
is is you know about you is, is time limit it's good security policy you know when i create a pgp certificate i usually say expires in a year uh frequently the passwords that uh, people uh, assign you in a corporate environment will expire in a month or two months or three months that's not a bad thing no and again exactly so stale information that's getting older has a has just greater chance of exposure greater chance of you know leaking out getting out and so forth so so there's some reason to to understand uh, i mean there there's there's some 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 justification for for certificates expiring i would just say that you know well to answer greg's direct question there's nothing in any way more dangerous i would say consider the circumstances consider the web, the, the website maybe ask or determine why it's expired how long it's been expired but it it actually can be that um expiration can sneak up on the owner of a certificate i've you know knocking on wood here that that's never bitten me um you know we've always had plenty of time the other thing i will mention i've been worried about renewing a certificate well before the expiration date wondering if i would get credit for the you know how much earlier i am over the expiration the good news is i've confirmed i do get credit so sometimes I remember, you know, before I was sure of that, I'd wait till, you know, not many days before expiration because I, I didn't, you know, I was already pissed off that I was having to <laughs> right. pay so much money so often for like nothing for some bits, essentially. Um, but, you know, now I know that when I get my first email notice from VeriSign that, you know, hey, you know, you got some certificates coming due here. It's like, OK, good. Do it now. Because if they're gonna they're gonna extend me from the actual time of expiration, not the time of renewal. So, for people who have certificates, that's you know something good to know. Moving along, Jonathan, the IT student from Roseville, California, doesn't like Nat. This sounds like a kid's book. Jonathan doesn't like Nat. Get those gnats off me. <laughs> I just listened to episode 199, and while I liked the episode, I have to take issue with what you said about IPv6 versus IP4 with NAT. While NAT is an acceptable stopgap before we run out of IP4 addresses, it is not an acceptable permanent solution. We said that, you know, IPv4, we were running out of numbers, but thanks to NAT, it's it's not the critical situation it was before. The problem with NAT is that it breaks up the Internet into segments. While the purpose of the internet is to bring people together through the computer, not through my, not through my router, however, but all right, we'll get to that. <laughs> Essentially, it cripples while not breaking the internet. For example, my brothers and I like to play Battlefield 2 together in co-op mode. To do so, one of us has to act as a server and the others connect in through their IP addresses. My parents' house, however, is behind a NAT router at the ISP level, so there's no way they can serve as the server. With me playing behind my college campus NAT, fortunately I have at least one of us, at least one of us is on the Comcast network and has a public address. NATs are not a solution, they're just a patch. Is is, is the IPv6 solution better than that? Well, it's, it, okay, this brings up an interesting point. It's something that I failed to mention when I was talking about this last week, That and and this and Jonathan's note reminded me, and that is that another aspect of this issue of addressing really goes back to sort of the original internet sort of Unix guru 
purists. These are people who who fundamentally believe what Jonathan is saying. That one is that, CPU, one IP address. Yes, that that there that every single machine on the internet should be available by a unique IP address. I mean, that's like that was the fundamental concept in the beginning was every one of these machines would have an IP address and this amazing routing architecture with packet forwarding would allow by this incredible technology, you know, any machine to reach any other. Um, These are the same people who are really annoyed by the notion of stealth because, oh, that's breaking the right. fundamental structure of the Internet. You're, you're talking the I- about the thing. You coined this term, the idea that a router might not respond to yes. a ping from another router. Yes, or, or exactly. Or yes, precisely. And then the idea that an ISP would be blocking the ICMP because they don't want their internal networks to be trace routed. And again, the the purists are like infuriated by this. It's like, wait a minute. That's. Any machine, any router, any hop, any endpoint needs to respond to ICMP because that's the the you know the underlying um, you know uh, you know inter low level inter machine glue that allows us to figure out you know what's wrong with the internet, where something's broken, and so forth. And sadly, this is not the way the world turned out. Um, what they're saying is, that, you know, the, that purist view says everybody on the net is a good guy and everybody has everybody else's best, best intentions and, 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 you know, doesn't wish anybody ill. Unfortunately, we really know that's not the case. So here's Jonathan, for example, with his example in Battlefield 2. He's got three people. He would like them all to have access to each other. Well, what he's saying is, then, we need no routers and no firewalls, because (laughs) if you have firewalls, you still have to configure the firewall to allow access in, just as you could, you know, he's saying, well, his parents' house is behind a NAT. Well, although actually he said NAT at the ISP level. Now, that is a particularly um, extreme form of problem. Because that means that his his ISP is giving him probably ten dot addresses, or I mean, like all of their customers, or maybe you know, um, uh, you know, seventeen dot or one nine two dot one six eight or something. So that's a problem because there's no NAT for them to configure. So, so, but 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 in the normal case with a residential NAT router, well, okay, it's a firewall, and so if you want incoming penetration you need to configure it just like you would a firewall and we now know that there's just no way that internet use is safe without a firewall that is your system cannot be wide open to the entire internet so you know again unfortunately reality impinges on on this you know the the internet unix gurus original immaculate conception of what the internet could be. And, you know, we know that the net has lots of bad people who do not wish us well, and we need to protect ourselves. Is it possible that you could uh, have that kind of open system and still be secure? I mean, with other techniques? 
Well, you could certainly have per machine addressing, i.e., mm-hmm. or <laughs> a la IPv6. You could have per machine addressing, but you're absolutely going to have a firewall. I mean, to not have a firewall means to trust. I mean, and mean, uh, I mean, absolutely trust all of the code that you've got running on your machine. I mean, which are increasingly complex today. You know, one of the things I don't do when I'm running through security news is talk about the 5,000 other applications per week that have security problems. I mean, because they're not major problems for people. You know, there are OS is our major problem, but I mean, all kinds of other security problems exist, but they don't know. We don't have time if we, if we broadcasted 24 seven Leo for, for talking about all the other problems. So I, I just, with our systems being as complex as they are, I can't imagine it being safe not to have a firewall protecting you. That is to allow a system to be wide open. It would mean that any applications that people used that were receiving packets would have to be secure against everything. I mean, Battlefield 2, if it's if it's acting as a server, Lord knows what kinds of security problems it has. I guarantee you it has them. But because its exposure is limited Thanks to the fact that it's behind NAT routers and behind firewalls and people have to go to some pain to configure it. You know, that pain is is allowing access to in a controlled fashion. If it were uncontrolled, all hell would break loose. (laughs) We wouldn't want that. The world is just not it just it's not the way it was originally conceived when the Internet was born. All right, are you ready for the Telltale TPM? Hmm. Jeff in Michigan asks about that. He says, Hi, Stephen Leo. Thank you so much for your great podcast and the wealth of information and security uh, and otherwise every week. My question is, if there's an easy way to tell if your computer is uh, equipped with a trusted platform module or TPM. As I understand it, TPM is required to use the Windows Vista Windows 7 full drive encryption. When I tried to enable this feature on my HP TX2500 laptop, that's Fairly old, I think. It complained about not having a TPM available and would not continue. For some reason, I thought that almost all computers in the recent years... Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. This laptop is less than a year old, he says. Have shipped with TPM. But I guess I'm wrong. Since I only wanted to play around with the encryption, it wasn't a big deal. And there's always, you know, the great whole drive encryption available through the free TrueCrypt we talk about all the time. Anyway, do either of you know if there's a handy utility or website that will help me figure out if a computer has TPM available without pouring through the chipset and motherboard specs. I've been a listener of Security Now since your episode on Internet anonymity, and I've loved it ever since. Thank you again for all the work you put into the show. It's worth every second. Signed, Jeff. Well, here's a few more worthwhile seconds. Um, every single machine I have ever seen with TPM has it disabled. Huh? Because it it would be problematic if 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 you didn't know it was enabled, is that right? Uh, no, uh, frankly, I don't think so. Um, but for whatever reason, I mean, I can't think of any good reason to always have it disabled. But every machine I have, every laptop I have, and I've got a bunch, 
and and also desktops with 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 TPM on the motherboard. If you go into the BIOS and you'll uh, under like typically under security, and then it'll have maybe you know trusted platform or, or some l- lingo of some sort that'll sort of guide you there. You'll find that it is turned off. So you have to go through some right. some you know you have to basically just mess with the BIOS. So so Jeff in Michigan, what you want to do? You don't need to really do anything except get into your BIOS by you know. F2 or delete or function one or whatever it is you do to get into the BIOS and poke around under the security section, which most BIOSes these days have, you'll probably, if your system has TPM, that's where you'll be able to absolutely definitively determine it. And if it's off and disabled as it will have shipped almost certainly, then Windows doesn't know anything about it. It hasn't installed the TPM driver. It has, you know, does it has no information that there's a TPM underneath that is disabled. It's completely hidden until you enable it in the BIOS. And normally, it's a multi-boot process. You you first enable the TPM. Sometimes you then have to reboot after you know saving the, the new configuration. Then you need to initialize the TPM, which is sort of a flushing out and cleaning out process to sort of put it into a known state. So you do that, and then when you get back into Windows, the Windows will pop up and say, oh, new hardware is found, trusted platform module. Oh, what do you know? <laughs> um, and normally there will be a companion driver that, that came along with the laptop Maybe it's already installed. You, uh, you may want to check uh, and see if you can find a trusted platform module driver for the particular laptop or desktop model you have because you probably at some point need to let this, the system sniff that driver in order to incorporate it into itself, um, and then you're good to go. But in every case, for whatever reason, these things are disabled when they ship. You need to go in and manually say, I want trusted platform module services Turn them on on the BIOS, then they'll surface in the OS, and you can proceed from there. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if there is a tool that would tell you. If it's disabled, it wouldn't tell you anyway. Um, go into the BIOS. Probably... The BIOS, if it has, if you've got TPM, the BIOS is going to say turn on TPM, right? It's going to have some switch like that. Yeah, it does absolutely. Yeah. So, Every BIOS I've seen, it makes it very clear. You just have to dig around in there under typically under security issues and it'll it'll be an option there there you go go into your bios look in the security tab and see if there's anything about tpm that's yep. a that's a good fix yep don daniels in evergreen colorado discovered something about skype and universal plug and play dear steve i was poking around through the settings on skype the current uh, version 4.0.0.226 and noticed in the tools options advanced connection tab there's a block that says enable upnp that is checked by default panicsville <laughs> I unchecked it, but then I thought, well, I'm trying to experiment. So I rechecked it, shut down, restarted Skype, ran unplug and pray, and it showed no problems. It said UPnP is safely disabled. Oh, I see a, I see a problem here. Yep. What is going on? And does and, and thanks Microsoft for confusing this issue. Huh. What is going on? And does this default setting in Skype open us up to any security threats? Don Daniels, listener, since episode one. Oh, I found you episode eighteen, but I went back and caught up. So this is really a confusion of terminology is what this it's, is. It's got confusion coming and going here. First of all, when he referred to unplug and pray, he's talking about one of my closed source but free uh, security uh, bits of freeware that I wrote a long time ago in response to a 
very bad security vulnerability in Microsoft Windows universal plug-and-play service running in Windows XP before Service Pack 2 when most people didn't yet have a firewall running. And so this, there, was a, there was a remote code exploit which bit all kinds of people um, where you could simply receive a packet at your Windows XP system and because Microsoft's own universal plug-and-play service was vulnerable, it was a remote code exploit. You could get your system taken over. So I wrote Unplug and Pray, which all it does is stop the service. It just disables it um, and then tells you, okay, that service is, is safely disabled. Um, and at the time, nothing was using universal plug and play. So it was you know, unfortunate that it was on, open, running, and vulnerable. Okay, so... What's happening with Skype is different, but it's also a concern. What what you're doing now, and this is an example of sort of, you know, universal plug and play beginning to come into use. Skype is saying, hey, you know how Steve and Leo have ports mapped through their routers, so they're able to get really clear connections. Because Steve and Leo have ports mapped through their routers for Skype, they never use a relay a third party to relay their traffic. Remember, we were just talking about NAT traversal. Um, there are some situations that Skype cannot handle. So in, in that event, if both of us are behind NAT routers without any ports mapped and telling Skype to use those ports, those mapped ports, Skype may have to bounce our traffic off of a third party that's somewhere out on the Internet that we can both reach because we can't reach each other. They call those the, uh, the super nodes, right? Well, exactly. Those are so-called Skype supernodes. So what Skype has now done with this most recent version, I don't know how far back it goes, is they've said, hey, routers are generally universal plug-and-play aware. And we've talked about that, how routers have a, you know, enable UPnP also. So if the router's enabled, when Skype is started up, it's able to send a broadcast out onto the network to say, hey, what universal plug-and-play guys are out here? And, and basically, every universal plug-and-play device on the net will enumerate itself. It'll report in and say, hey, and one of them will be, hey, I'm a router. And Skype says, hey, great. Uh, I got a little port I want you to open for me. And so without you doing anything, and remember, this is all default. So Skype's default was enabled. Your router's default is enabled. Without you doing anything, Skype has opened a port on your router, which is good for Skype, and it's good for your Skype connections. It means, hey, look, I upgraded to a newer version of Skype, and somehow my connections are better. What's happened is it's allowed Skype to receive traffic through that port to itself. Um. That requires that Skype has that option enabled and your router has that option enabled. Then they both get together and, and without you knowing it, they do this port mapping through your router. So that's what that's about. Um, I, I can't say that that's a huge safety concern. I hope that when you shut down Skype, it closes the port behind itself, that if it's not using it, it doesn't leave it open. We hope, of course, that Skype doesn't have any bad security problems, 
because what we are saying then is that, you know, this incoming port is always going to be forwarded to Skype running on your machine. If there were a security problem, then that could be a, a security exposure. On the other hand, um, in order to get the kind of communication clarity that you want, um, it's necessary to let two Skype endpoints find each other without going through a relay. And this certainly does make it much easier to have that happen without needing to go do it manually. So we um, have, for best results, that's what we do. We have a dedicated port. I use 22222. Yep. And uh, so you can use any arbitrary port. Uh, usually, I would say between 1024 and 65535. But um, yes, it wants to be up in the in the client port range. High, is, higher is side. Better. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, so that's why I use 22222. That's not claimed by uh, anything. Is uh, And so that's the same idea. And, and then I have to, by the way, port forward any incoming and outbound, incoming traffic from the router to that machine, the Skype machine. Correct. Uh, and then in theory, uh, we are both preventing being a super node, which could impact your performance, and getting a dedicated port, which should give us better results, yeah? Yes, we exactly. We, we have a non-relayed connection because our Skypes that are our Skype uses a trusted third party. That is, there is Skype Central, which does all the so-called presence management. Right. You know, when I when I start up my Skype, it shows me of my contact people who's online. So that's that happens by me logging into Skype Central and and sharing my contact list, or maybe Skype maintains it for me. Who knows in detail how it works? It doesn't really matter. But one way or the other, it says, "Oh, here are the people that." are also currently logged on that you know. So it tells me about that. Then it also knows if I have opened a port for it to use. So when somebody wants to connect to me, like Leo, when you're when we're initiating this recording and you want to connect to me through Skype Central, it tells um, your Skype that you're able to reach me on a certain port. So your Skype sends its traffic to my specially pre-opened mapped port, which comes directly to me, and we're able to get a non-relayed communication. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And that's not um, any. That's not a security hole unless, as you say, Skype has a flaw. Yes, what it means is that incoming traffic will be received by Skype, and, and we want to believe and we hope that Skype was written carefully and securely, right. that it, for example isn't listening to that traffic when we're not actually in a communication, in a, in a conversation, I'd be much more comfortable if the packets were just bouncing off of my machine and there was nothing listening than having like Skype always ready to receive something because that creates a larger security target. Our last question. Are you ready, sir? It's a quickie and an easy one. <laughs> Jeffrey Dunn in Riley Twip. And I don't know what that is. I Googled it. TWP. Where is that? What is that? That's that's where he said he was. Don't know. I'm sure we'll find out. Yeah. Anybody in the chat room have an idea? What is TW? Oh, Township. Riley Township. Ah, okay. Thank you. We have a lot of... I tell you, our chat room. That's, that's <laughs> my brain. People. They're good. Yeah, Riley Township. We don't know where that is, but it's somewhere where they have townships. Which could be almost anywhere. I wonder about Brief... And syntax highlighting. Steve, I heard you mention you use Brief, which is a ancient, I mean ancient, <laughs> text editor. I was curious, does your version have syntax highlighting 
It had been a while since I used Brief, but I dug out the floppies and I started using it again. I forgot how productive I could be with it. This is this is a DOS program. Yes, it is. And if, and it will not run in Windows 7. Because, oh, no. Yeah. So finally it comes to the end of its life. Uh, and not yet, because I'm not running in Windows 7 yet either. So, <laughs> And may not be for some time to come. Um, long time ago. Uh, this was a, far, pro- a programmer's text editor that Steve still uses. Yes. I mean, it's even, you know, an acronym for Basic Reconfigurable Internet uh, uh, Interactive Editing Facility. Because it's BR. totally configurable. <laughs> oh, it is. It's yeah. phenomenally. And I've completely reconfigured mine. However, um, syntax highlighting is just a fantastic thing to have. And editors at the time did not offer it. There was a piece of freeware that came out called Colors. And it's interesting because you would run it and then it and it would kind of go resident in the same memory as uh, as other applications that would then load on top of it, it would turn around and then load brief, but it had hooked a whole bunch of so-called interrupt lines to the BIOS for the keyboard, for the video output, for the timer and a few other things so that it was able to determine when text changed on the screen. And when checks changed, changed on the screen, it would quickly go up, check to see what had had changed, check a configuration file that the user provides, and color it. So essentially, it it's provides sort of third-party, instantaneous coloration of text in a DOS box. And it works perfectly. I've been using it for nearly 20 years. Um, huh. It was wow. freeware. Excuse me? Wow. <laughs> it was freeware, but I I was so in love with it that I didn't want ever to not have it. So we paid, I, as I remember, a couple thousand dollars for the source code. You're kidding. Just, no, because, I mean, this thing was so cool that I thought, well, if, it ever, if there's something I need that it won't do, I want to be able to do it. And I, yeah, What's I it written in? See? Uh, I don't even remember. I never, comp- I never compiled or assembled the source. I never needed it because the thing has worked perfectly all this time. Um, I mention all this because being free, I can let people play with it. And so it is available. I, uh, several other people, listeners, uh, and people in our news groups have asked, hey, Steve, I love the, the screenshots you've shared of you know the way your code looks. I want mine to look the same way with colors. So uh, the URL is grc.com slash miscfiles, M-I-S-C-F-I-L-E-S, as in miscellaneous files, miscfiles slash colors.zip. And in there, I spent a couple hours last week putting together some documentation just out of my own memory and gave some examples, the, the, um, the, configuration file that i use is there the little couple hundred k i don't even think it's that big colors xe is there um, again it's free uh the source is not there because you know that we purchased and i don't have the author's permission to to share that um i don't even know who it's written by i looked through the xe trying to find any name or anything but you know that's been lost to history but i do know that it was freeware so grc.com slash MISC files, M-I-S-C-F-I-L-E-S slash colors dot zip. 
and uh, anybody who wants to play with it is welcome to do so. Wow, that is and it, great. That it is colorizes cool. DOS boxes. <laughs> really yeah, it's cool. really neat. Really cool. And of course, any modern text editor does that <laughs> without any additions. <laughs> but you don't have all the key bindings. You can't use dot commands and stuff Well, and like nobody that. supports assembler. Imagine that, Leo. Nobody Nobody, has, nobody supports nope. assembler? Nope. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, because no so you do need that with crazy people. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's kind of intriguing. Just the crazy folks. Just the crazy. Just just us crazy people. I think more people should write an assembler. Well, actually, there's been a little bit of a groundswell of interest as a consequence of, of me having talked about it as much oh, as I have. that's nice to know. So, yeah. That's great. All right, Steve Arino, we have come Episode to the end. Episode 200 is behind us. 200 episodes. It's eight exhausting. More, eight more, and we, have, we wrap up year four That's, at 208. I don't know which is a bigger deal, year four or a 200th episode. Anyway, I'm, congratulations. Uh, I'll, I'll toast you with a, a glass of, uh, of cab. <laughs> Sounds great. Now, hey, speaking of which, I wonder if that 208 episode is you in China. Because that's two months from now. No, no, I'm going to China in about three weeks. Oh, okay. Then um, good. We, we have to be doing double episodes here soon, to get, yeah. so we continue never to miss one. We will. I'm going to be in China July 2nd through the 18th, and uh, while we will miss some shows, we're not going to miss this one because Steve's unswerving commitment to never missing an episode means that we'll have to double up before I leave. So if you do watch this live, and we do do it live every Wednesday. Uh, around 11 a.m. Pacific, that's 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC, and uh, probably the next couple of weeks we'll do uh, two in a row. Yeah, actually, I've, I have a note here. I just fired up my little my little Post-it Notes app. Uh, it says, Security Now Double Recordings, June 24th, tw- yep. June 24th and July 1st. Okay, so we're going to get right up to the edge there. Does that sound right to that you? That does sound right, because I okay. leave July 2nd. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Steve. Happy okay, 200th, and we'll see you all next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.